This is Jason Douglas from CultureCast Radio, and you're listening to the 4D Podcast Network. I am your host, Michael Malone, and today I'm sharing a conversation I had with Juliette Nelson. Juliette is a thought leader, an entrepreneur, and the author of the new book, Sharing My Lens, The College Experience. When I listened back to our conversation, there was a common theme that kept coming into play, and that that theme was accountability. Not really to others, but more importantly to ourselves. You know, a few episodes ago, I talked about hiking up a mountain for the first time in a, in a long time and how I felt like giving up about halfway through and how nobody would even give a fuck if I did give up or not. <laughs> you know, like nobody was checking in on me that day. And I had to hold myself accountable for my actions that afternoon. Well, that's not only true for that afternoon, but for every afternoon, every task, every goal, every day, like you are responsible for your own actions. Nobody else can put in the work for you. It has to be you. I always have that old phrase, the world doesn't owe you anything rattling around in the back of my mind somewhere because it's so fucking true. Like nobody owes you anything. The, the universe isn't going to just hand you over your goals if you're not putting in the work. You are only in debt to yourself. I'm going to say that last part again. You are only in debt to yourself. Remember that. You know, in this modern era we live in, I think we expect a certain amount of things to be given to us, right? Like our level of expectancy is way higher these days than any other time in history. Everything is instant and bingeable, you know, like most times you don't have to wait for new episodes of your favorite TV show to come out because all of the seasons are available right now at your fingertips. You can order food from your phone. You don't have to cook anymore. A stranger will come and pick you up from any location, including the dreaded LAX drive within minutes, and they'll take you wherever you need to go. We now have normalized this level of expectancy in our everyday lives. And, and when things don't work out in our favor, that's when we're, we, we, you know, we're, we're so quick to blame the exterior things, right? We, we, we play the victim card when our, when our coffee takes too long to get made or our Uber driver changes routes or, or God forbid that restaurant is, is out of the favorite thing you always order. I mean, how could they not have it ready for you? Didn't they know you were coming in? <laughs> you know, like... This level of expectancy we all live with now. The world doesn't owe you anything. Nothing. Zip, zero, De Niro, my friend. <laughs> this level of expectancy that you're holding on to doesn't exist. So once again, all roads lead back to you. What do you owe yourself? You are in debt to yourself and only yourself. Nobody is checking in on you. If I didn't make it up to the top of that mountain the other day when I was hiking, nobody gives a fuck. 
the police weren't going to come arrest me. None of my friends were asking about it or even rooting for me. Like nobody, nobody is checking on you. I wasn't going to let anybody down if I didn't make it up to that mountain. It's up to you to give a fuck about your actions. It's you. You have to be the one to hold yourself accountable. And that's what I love about my guest today. Juliette is someone who knows the value in holding yourself accountable. She's the founder and CEO of a company that equips students and professionals and business owners with tools and resources to be successful in, in all different areas of their lives. She's created a, a publishing house, which focuses on bringing young writers' vision to life. She's, she's launched a wooden eyewear collection with blue light blocking solution for students and professionals. She has pushed herself to achieve all of these things herself. She didn't wait for permission. She didn't rely on others to put in the hard work for her. She was accountable for her own actions. So remember that. You are only in debt to yourself. As I'm, I'm, I'm reading about you and your accomplishments and your, and your drive, there's, there's a word that keeps popping up in my head, and that word is accountability. And I'm someone who I've never waited on the industry to, to move my career forward. You know, I've, I've shot my own comedy special. I've, I've shot my own films. I've done this. I've never waited on showcases to, like, move me along and stuff. And you, you strike me as someone that has done the same throughout your career. How important is that accountability? Oh, it's, it's extremely important. I think that's what kind of at least has kept me on track um, in, in terms of achieving my goals. I think it also has helped me filter out um, the negative the criticism that wasn't needed, right? The unsolicited opinions and the unsolicited criticism and kind of reminding myself, okay, this is your life, right? These are your dreams and these are your goals. And the nice thing is I think I've also been blessed to just be surrounded by people who also hold me accountable. Um, you know, one of my closest friends, she's very cutthroat. Um, and to some people, she might come off harsh, but to me, it's like words of love, right? And when you have people like that, where you're so tempted to listen to the naysayers who might kind of veer you off course of your purpose of what you're you're meant to do in life, you have people like her who are like, no, get back in line, um, you know, stay the course, um, stay focused. So it's honestly a combination, again, of me reminding myself of who I am, what I'm meant to do. Um, and that also helps me to kind of weed out what's not for me and weed out what's for me and also push through the ch through challenges that come about. Right. Um, everybody it's... has those seasons where you fall, but you also have to remember, like, this is what I'm meant to do. And when you know this is what you're meant to do, you know that, OK, I'm having a bad day. I'm having a bad month. I'm having a bad year. That doesn't mean I'm about to get it. That, that doesn't mean that I'm not going to get up after. So. <laughs> 
Yeah, I talk about that in my in my special. Um, I talk about grief and self care and therapy and all that stuff. And the and the a lot of times the uh, the advice that you get from people is that very generic, like, "Well, get right back up. You got to get back on that horse." And what I talk about in my special is is laying in your mess mm-hmm. and how important that is sometimes to lay there for a minute, figure out, you know, not to wallow in it, not to be stuck in it, but enough time to you figure out, okay, how did I fuck up? Where did I go wrong? What am I learning from this? Because when you do take that advice and you just get right back on the horse, right. you don't really learn anything. Right. Um, and, and, and that separation of a validation from others is so hard. We're all, you know, we have this kind of uh, ingrained in us uh, that that we have this acceptance from others. Are there any, how do you deal with separating that, that validation? It's a, it's an ongoing thing. And I will, first I'll tell you that I very much do agree with you in terms of, you know, how you get back up. Right. I think we like to approach this thing, the spirit of resiliency um, where, instead of us really addressing how we feel and how we go through things, we just say, oh, okay, I'm done. It's over. And that's not how it works because we're human beings, right? Um, And I've mentioned this, I've had conversations with this, even on the concept of forgiveness. You can say that you no longer hold someone um, accountable for what they did, but you also have to deal with how it made you feel. Those are two separate things. Um, those, those feelings are what help you to reflect and what help you to kind of remain grounded and, and to also move forward. Now with, with the, the second question, separating, separating, separating the validation from others, validation. Right? because we think it's so important. You know, we, we, right. a lot of time, especially when we're creating stuff, you know, you, you've created a lot of things and, and it's, you know, you, you do it a lot of times thinking this is for a certain type of audience, you know, right. uh, so I would say for that, um, and that's that's a that's been a really that's been a journey for me, right? Um, because I've never I tend to do a lot of what I want, um, and I've said this on previous podcasts because I like to be very much responsible and accountable for my decisions. So, for example, um, you know I don't know putting my hand in a fire. That's not something I would do. But just for an example, if I felt that was the best decision for me to make. That's a decision that I've chosen and I've done it. I know what the consequences are and I've chosen to do it anyway. And when I get burned, now I can be responsible. I won't say that my peers or my friends told me to do it. And so therefore I did it. And I think that's how it also comes with accountability, not not accountability, validity and and validation, where um, I found that even though I wasn't as concerned with what like the whole world had to think they're like those people who are so close to me that I always look for their validation, right? And I found that um, while it's nice to be surrounded by people who will validate you, who will uplift you, who will encourage you, the challenge is what happens when you're hurt? What happens when you have, you you come into this kind of challenge, this challenging time, right? Where maybe those who are closer than closer to you might be responsible for that hurt, right? Or might be responsible for the disappointment or might be responsible or you might feel like they didn't support you enough, right? In pushing out your special or me pushing out my creative idea. At that point, it's like, okay, I need them to validate that how I feel is real. 
And so I've had to go on this journey of saying, when it comes to my dreams and my goals, it may not look like everybody else, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't matter to me perceiving that I didn't get support or that my journey is hard or that I was hurt along the way or what even engaging in a friendship relationship that wasn't conducive to me. I do not need the validation from someone that my feelings matter. And so that's where I'm now in this process of trying to, trying to doubt myself less, right? I just launched an eyewear, an eyewear collection and I've had, you know, the naysayers on price, on style, on, on material, on approaches. Once again, you don't even, sometimes don't even need to take it as negative criticism, right? Um, you take it, it sounds good. It makes sense, but it doesn't make sense for you. And that's enough. Yeah. Yeah. You're so right. I mean, there's nothing wrong with, with taking a pulse, you know what I mean? Like, like seeing what other people's opinions are, but that doesn't mean that you have to necessarily put any action into it. Yeah. I think that's so important. And, and you, you hit on something earlier about apologies. And I think a lot of times there's a miscommunication when people, when you do have that friction in relationships, whether it be romantic or friendship or whatever, you have you have the the surface level of just saying i'm sorry mm-hmm. but you still have stuff to work through and a lot of people don't realize that they think that once they say you know those two magic words it's done it's over and you should be friends again and 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 that's and that's all there is but there's work to be done mm-hmm. how do you Man, I struggle. Something I struggle with, too, is I have a lot of empathy for others. Right. And I'm I'm sure you do, too. I'm sure that's common, (laughs) you know, outside the Republican Party. I think that's common to have empathy for others. Uh, But I, uh, (laughs) I, I struggle with when you have those toxic relationships and you do go through that turmoil and you you have something come up and both parties say, OK, yeah, we, we agree this was fucked up. And yeah, I'm sorry. You're sorry. But then that work doesn't get done or they refuse to do that work or they continue to have the behavior that caused the friction or whatever it is. What do you do then? I, are you are you somebody who is able to cut toxic people out of your life or do you continue to put faith in that person that they'll get better or like what are healthy habits for that? So I'm going to tell you that this is something I'm, I'm, I'm still navigating. Um, and it, I guess it depends for me because I don't like separation. Um, I, I don't know if you're, you're big on Zodiac, but I'm a Scorpio. Okay. And um, we, we're big on trust. Um, I tend to, the descriptions, not everybody will match them, but when you look at that Zodiac description of the Scorpio, I fit it for the most part almost perfectly. And they do say that it's hard for us to trust people. And I know I'm that way. One thing that'll mess me up is some secrets, some lies. (laughs) And so I found that in looking for validation, that I have the right to feel that my trust was broken, that would I would almost be expected by people to remain in relationship with them. And I'm talking friendship, whatever it is, whatever interaction. And so in some situations where I didn't feel as emotionally connected or emotionally responsible for that person, for example, like in the workplace, 
it's easy for me to say, you know what, you're not healthy for me. And I know we're coworkers, but this is strictly business. So if I bump into you, I will, you know, I, I will treat you as a human being. But outside of that, we're not kicking it at the company brunch. We're not hanging out. I don't care if you're drunk. Okay. <laughs> Stay aside, I would say mine, right? But then you have those friends, you have family and so on and so forth. And that becomes a little bit more challenging in defining, okay, is it okay for me to step away from this? Um, one thing I've also discovered it, with the concept of forgiveness, I realize I'm not a very forgiving person. Now, <laughs> listen to my theory, because <laughs> I think people tend to shut it down a lot. Um, I've read a lot of books on forgiveness. Um, and I find that to me, I feel like as society, we corrupt the concept or the term of forgiveness, right? I think what it really is, is letting go of the person, right? That hurt you. I think that's what right. we associate with forgiveness. But the definition of forgiveness is to remove them of accountability. How do you remove someone of accountability who doesn't want to take accountability? Does that make sense? Right. I grew, up, I grew up Christian. So I even read from a spiritual book that said that even in the Bible, it says that you have to repent and then you get the two work together. And so I find that society tends to put out this concept of forgiveness is just for you, not for the person. No, it is for the person, but the person doesn't realize it's for them because they've never been held, held accountable. And because they haven't been held accountable, they don't feel sorry enough that your forgiveness is valuable to them. It doesn't mean anything. But for example, I don't know, uh, a, a person who maybe killed someone else in a drunk driving uh, incident, and now they have to spend years in prison, you know, their young years, teenage years, growing up in prison with, when they never imagined their life like that, right? But they killed one of their friends and now they are begging for forgiveness because this is not a money thing anymore. It's more of a psychological thing where it's eating them up alive and they actually have to be held accountable. But I think as human beings, when we feel that we can be taken out of accountability and absolved of it, we don't care to apologize. The forgiveness doesn't matter to us. And so for me, I find that forgiveness is just a very precious thing that I don't hand out to everyone, right? right. Um, granted, you know, there are some people I will choose to forgive them because in order for me to be in relationship, again, friendship, whatever encounter with them it is, there's a level of friend uh, of, of, of loyalty offered, yeah. right but at the same time i'm very clear like i don't trust you <laughs> so how, how are we gonna make this so that it's healthy right are you really going to say i'm sorry for hurting you sometimes and and it's not even saying that you intended to hurt that person it's just acknowledging the fact that you exhibited behaviors that hurt the person that's what you take accountability for and you work through that together. And so now I'm kind of in this place where I realize that I now have a limit and I'm not going to beg. You know, I'm not going to beg. I yeah. will be clear. I'm not a forgiving person and you broke my trust. If you would like to, you know, I am open to reconciliation, but we need to discuss what the terms of this reconciliation are. And if it doesn't work for me, then, then it's fine. I can let go of the idea of them. Me not forgiving someone doesn't mean I have to hate them. It doesn't even mean I'm holding them in my heart. Right. It means I, that I think they should be held accountable. 
I heard a I heard a great uh, conversation today. I'm going to share with you about the idea of loyalty because we're talking about right. friendships and relationships and holding that right. accountability. And this uh, this couple was talking, and he and he had brought up the idea of, of loyalty, and he said he said I'm not loyal to people, and it kind of threw his partner off. And she was asking questions, and he's like he's like I know that sounds fucked up, but he's like but I'm not loyal to people. Mm-hmm. I'm loyal to principles, and I that really made me reevaluate how I looked at my relationships too, where it's, it's this idea, you know, especially in this society in America where we're taught that, you know, uh, family is everything and friendships and all this stuff are so important and we become loyal to people. And yet these people keep pushing those boundaries or breaking our trust or do whatever. Yet we stay loyal to them where if you're loyal to principles, then that doesn't matter what they're, you know, what, what matters is their actions. So if they are, you know, what we're having right now in society with the big issue, the, the big clash that's happening right now is with, uh, with, with Democrats and Republicans, right? We're having such a hard time meeting in the middle. And now this Republican party who is damaged all this fabric in our society over the last four years with their loyalty to Trump is now asking for forgiveness without actually any accountability. You know, these same people that were saying that police should be rougher when they're arresting, you know, individuals and storming the Capitol steps and doing all these things are now just being like, well, we should get along. We yeah. should, that's in the past. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I've had friendships like that. I've had family members like that where some really fucked up stuff has happened and they just, they rely on that loyalty of right. people. Over, over principle, over loyalty to principles. But I think it's something that we're taught, like it's ingrained in us as kids, right? One kid hurts another, say sorry. Okay, hug each other. Your friends now? Yes, okay, go play. And I'll give you, um, I remember, I'm a children's choir director. I can't say which choir, but I'm a, <laughs> I've directed a couple of choirs. There was a situation, um, and these are kids from like four years old to their teens. So it's a, a kind of a, a, a decent age uh, group. Um, now there was one rehearsal I had with the kids. And um, one, and another thing I'll mention, I'm not big on bullying. I absolutely hate bullying. I don't care if it's a sister, brother, don't flinch in another kid's direction the wrong way because it's going to be a problem. I don't, I don't like it. I don't like even subtle bullying at all. So there was a situation with, you know, two boys playing. I think one of them, I don't know, punched another in the head or something, smacked them inside that something happened. And um, I said, I, I called it out in front of the choir. I said, that's unacceptable. You know, bullying is a, is, is a zero, it, I note zero tolerance. And I said, you keep all hands, feet and objects to who? And he said, myself. And I said, now you apologize. And he apologized. And I turned to the other kid. And I said, do you accept his apology? And the other kid fixed his face and was like, no. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, man. And I'm looking at this boy and I'm like, I'm not mad at you. But the only thing I could say, I was like, you petty. you know but for me it was like honestly like you can't force even kids they're human too you know what I mean so imagine for adults um and I think especially with family it's like oh well we're family I know growing up in the church it's like oh we're brother and we're brothers and sisters in Christ 
Um, not if you tried to sexually assault. We're not right. anything. Um, I'm calling the cops and I'm holding you accountable. Like, no, 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 no. Um, and, and I think that's, as you said, people tried to use that. And then forgiveness becomes more of an escape from being responsible. Taking accountability does not hurt your pride. It doesn't take your money. You know, you'll count your coins the same way. Um, it, it doesn't hurt your reputation. It's simply you acknowledging that you did something that impact negatively impacted another person. Um, and how that person processes it, they have every right. I read in a book, I think his name is, I forget his name, um, but it's the five languages of apology and it's called when sorry is not. And it says that when you have been the one to offend another person, it is not up to you to determine when you get forgiven. It is not on your terms. You apologize and it's done. And it's up to that person to work through their feelings and work through how they want to continue to engage with you. And I think some of us don't realize that um, based on how society defines forgiveness, oftentimes forgiveness requires that you have this level of emotional engagement with the person where you're still willing to continue. It's like that closure, right? That we look for, but the closure is only there more than likely because you're going to re-engage with the person. What if you want nothing to do with them? You know, it's as simple as, you know, divorcing yourself from the idea of that person, right? I no longer want to engage. I no longer want to be in this family ship, friendship, relationship, whatever it is with them. I no longer want to engage. And now I'm going to work on dealing with how it made me feel. Now, if the person comes to you and says, I'm very sorry, and I take full accountability, then that's up to you to, to work out a healthy approach to seeing how you either continue in whatever interaction you have with, or you say, you know what, I'm not even upset at you. I don't hold you to it. It happened. It's done. And you go your separate ways, but you're still intentional about working through how it made you feel because that never goes away. And that's going to shape how you move forward in other relationships. And I think accountability in romantic relationships is a game changer. Oh, yeah. I think a, I think a lot of times, you know, you get caught up in this idea of, of, of kind of what you were touching on is you don't get to, si- to decide how important something is to the other person. And I think in relationships, especially when you're, you start living together and, and, and cohabitating, little things could mean big things to the other person. Maybe you're living with a neat freak and every time you leave your socks by the, by the washer, instead of just putting them in the washer or whatever your, your little trait is, your little habit, um, maybe that drives the other person fucking crazy. Maybe that's like the top you know, number one thing on their pet peeve list. And when they come to you about it, your mind just goes other socks. I don't care about that. Just, just because you don't have value on the issue doesn't mean that somebody else doesn't. And that accountability in relationships is a game changer. If you can, if you can get to that point where somebody brings something to your attention, like let's say the socks and they're, Hey, you know, it really, it really affects me. It throws me off. You know, I, I like to keep things neat and whatever. Take that accountability and say, you know what? I do do that. I'm so sorry. I didn't realize that bothered you. And I, I'm, I'm going to work on that. Right. That is huge. That, right. And we're shaped by our experiences as well. Right. Who knows? It could have been a sock that that person when they're a kid. I don't know. It turned, it 
caught fire some way somehow. And so right. every time they see socks in the way, it's for them, it sets alarms in their head. Uh, so, and that was a trivial example, but it could happen. Um, right. And the reality is we are shaped by our experiences, even if it's in the slightest way. It, it makes us more alert, even if we're not dwelling in those experiences, but we become more alert. It, it, I always say that, you know, people where every day we're, re, we're, we're kind of, re, it's like a rebirth of ourselves every day based on the experiences, right? Because when you, when you for example, you put you as a, a kid, put their hand in the fire, they become a different person because now they know not to put their hand in the fire going forward. And so learning to be accountable is also being sensitive to the fact that people are shaped by their experiences. Um, I think one challenge too is that we're always supposed to consider, right? being sh- the, the, the offender being shaped by their experiences. Oh, oh, well, whether it's a, um, and they're valid, right? Whether they didn't, they grew up in a single parent home or they had like a traumatic experience that causes them to be on edge or more aggressive or, or whether it's education or something that happened at work or something that happened in a previous relationship, but what happens to the person who was hurt? You know, I understand that your experiences shape your behavior but that doesn't justify the fact that you don't work through that and you don't work through those issues. I'm not responsible for that. Right. Right. And so when you hurt me, my feelings are still valid regardless of whatever experiences have shaped that. And I can have compassion and empathy for that, but that does not absolve you from accountability. That's absolutely right. And I, I grew up in I grew up in the Midwest in the '90s, where like self care and yeah, and just like having feelings in general were so taboo, you know. Um, so it's something that I've I've discovered late in life this this kind of self care aspect and and kind of looking inward and this empowerment and stuff. And I was reading this this article recently, and it said that thirty uh, percent of the African American community receives uh, less mental health support than everybody else, and that the suicide rates are, have risen sixty percent with males and almost doubled for females. Yeah. And I, I guess, like, our how do we how do we reach that community better? Because for my for myself, what I've been trying to do is fight that narrative that goes goes with the male. A stereotype of not being able to feel your feelings, right? I've been trying to change that and and normalize therapy, normalize self-care for dudes, because we just by nature and by society, we've been taught to kind of just push those down, you know, like punch a wall, you'll feel better. <laughs> like that's so damaging and so wrong. Are there are there things that we should be doing better to reach the communities out there who aren't getting this mental health? Um, help that they need? I, I think, I mean, there are so many different layers to this. Um, I will say um, my, my best friend actually committed suicide uh, a few years ago. So that's something that it hits home for me. Um, oh. You know, there's just so many layers to it. Um, I think one thing is, again, validation, right? Validating the fact, especially in the African-American community, we historically we we descended from trauma right um with slavery and i think society likes to paint it as oh it was so many years ago get over it 
but I was just talking about the, sorry, I was just talking about this the other day and I brought up the idea that civil rights and everything in the sixties was not that long ago. And that like this, like yesterday. Yeah. When we talk about, when we talk about oppression, a lot of times we, in society, we, we, we go straight to slavery and I'm like, homie, you don't have to go back that far. (laughs) It's here. It's here now. Slavery is what I don't, slavery is kind of what, what I guess one of the things that really started everything and the crazy part about it. And I, and I realized that concept of slavery is what has really dictated to me every just weird policy we have. It, it has dictated, you know, um, aggression against LGBTQ. Uh, it has dictated, you know, kids in cages. It, it, it's influenced so much um, because of one group saying, okay, we're superior. And everybody else is inferior, even with Asians and immigration, you know, they've gone through their own trauma. Um, and, and, you know, it's not limited to the United States. Europe has their history as well. But when we're talking mental illness, especially in African-American males, back in, in slavery, you know, they were torn from their wives, from their children. You know, the family unit, unit was broken up they were beaten into compliance. They never owned anything. And so when we're talking like even manhood, right? Um, Someone mentioned something which was interesting. Even with manhood, you know, for a black man, oftentimes they want to have the latest car, the latest gadgets and so on and so forth. But it's this concept of we didn't really get to own things. And when we wanted to own things, they were taken from us. Um, And so when it comes to mental health, I think it's also that, learning to be resilient, right? Um, From those times, having to be resilient. And then, you know, with civil rights, and then now you have, you know, something as simple as a black man dying on video under someone's knee, and people recreating that as a joke, right? That within of itself, it's a recurring cycle. And then when you see things like, the storming of the Capitol building, right, where Blue Lives Matter folks were attacking Blue Lives, which was quite interesting. But then it becomes very triggering because it was like, wasn't it Black Lives Matter people protesting peacefully? And the president had them, you know, put out tear gas and all that just for him to go do a photo op in front of a church with a... so. All of that causes trauma. And I think we need to acknowledge that this stuff is real and that impacts their behaviors. Even if they might feel comfortable to go to therapy, seeing things like that without anybody acknowledging your trauma and your experiences are valid. The fear you have walking, taking a walk outside without your child, without your wife, without your dog, so you look less aggressive that is real. When we don't acknowledge that, especially for Black men, they're going to hold it in. There's no safe space for them to really feel that they can be 100% themselves. And then become there becomes the taboo of, it's okay to get some help and talk to somebody. It's okay. It's really okay. And that's not only for Black men. It's for men in general. You know, always having to be a provider and always 
um, being, you know, head of household, you know, and that's how society puts this pressure on men. I feel that there's not enough emphasis on the emotional provision because you have to be healthy enough to be able to take care of others, whether it's as a leader, whether it's as a friend, as a husband, as a son, as a father, whatever it is. And so when you're not encouraging them to be in tune with their emotions and to be intentional about their mental wellness and to be okay with getting help, when you're not saying it's okay, then of course they hold it in and it bubbles up. Yeah. And the society, we just, we have, we're so kind of numb to these dangerous narratives that have been around forever. Uh, you know, with, with men in general, it was this idea of like, what makes a real man, you know, and you, I, I, I always, I, I always think about the, the opening scene to the series, Californication. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever seen that series, but it's David Duchovny and the, opening sequence to the pilot episode he's driving like this like cool little porsche that he has his hair is kind of long and in his face he's smoking a cigarette he has sex with a girl who's like 20 years old he's in his 40s uh she punches him during sex he like you know he's like it's like uh, okay this is what this is what they want us to think that the male ego is this is what a real man looks like smoking cigs and having sex with 20 year old girls and driving fast cars that dangerous narrative spills over into real life when you have people out there now who think that uh homosexual men can't be a father because they can't provide for their family or they're not manly enough to protect their family or be a you know again provide and do all these things that quote unquote a real man does and you you have this really dangerous narrative and and you know it spills over to that accountability right like well who is accountable for that like is it marketing is it society you know blah blah Mm -hmm. blah and you 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 start to you start to, I, I thought the Capitol, uh, the storming of the Capitol was a, a perfect example of where does the line stop, right? Because you, you have this idea of, oh, you, you, these people, even though they hate all these different other groups of people, um, mm-hmm. they have such high respect for police. And then they killed the police <laughs> and, you're, and you know, they're literally stomping on, on police as they march up and you're like, Oh, so where is the line? So if you're, if you're telling me that these people that you're fighting t- to protect, you're now killing and going after then, then who's to say that you're not next, right. you know, like who sooner or later, you're going to start eating yourselves alive because right. there is no line. There is everything is blurred. Right. Because there is no accountability. Right. And, and I think the next challenge, too, is, you know, even with the storming of the Capitol, I think we, we are never, you can't cut somebody and tell them how to bleed, right? So you have protesters last summer, and then you have rioters a couple of, what, last month, right? Mm-hmm. The protesters, they're reacting to a system that keeps them some way or somehow bound, right? It could be a successful doctor, a celebrity, who's still a target. Like, it, it, like there's no, they, like, we're not taking hostages. That's really it. The oppression doesn't take hostages, no matter how rich, how poor, how beautiful, how handsome, or whatever you are. 
And, and so a lot of people are trying to almost gaslight or dummy down the, the, I guess the cause, right? You have people who went in and they looted buildings and, and so on and so forth. Uh, number one, it wasn't a Capitol building. That's number one. Number right. two, you know, what was it? The police precinct, I think in Minnesota went up. There's some symbolism to that, right? It's not that they went in because they lost an election and things didn't go their way. Things haven't been going our way since the beginning, since we were bought over here. It hasn't been going our yeah. way. And since <laughs> we lost an election, fair and square, right? Because they told Black people come out and vote. Black people came out and voted, and now everybody's upset, right? You know, um, and, you know, people have said, oh, well, four years ago when, um, Trump won the election, we were upset. Yes, and there were protests, but nobody was out here trying to storm anybody's building. We weren't storming anyone's building. The riots come out when we realize there's a reminder that our lives do not matter. And so, um, unfortunately, when you have someone who's been under a lot of distress, you're going to push them enough to where they're saying, please stop, this hurts. Please stop, this hurts. And then they snap and you have no control over how they snap because you haven't listened to them. And that's where a lot of those riots from the summer came from. And even some of them did not have any, anything to do with Black Lives Matter protesters. They were just people trying to provoke it. But then you have an election again that was won fair and square from the democracy that we're all taught in all of our schools, no matter what your socioeconomic status is. We learned about democracy and voting all the same way. And so we all exercise the right. And then you have people who are upset. And I know some people were saying, this is not the America we know, but for me, that's the America I know. <laughs> this Dude, is America, y'all are acting like it didn't exist, but this oh, is Oh, that was the thing I was, I was so like, people were like, this isn't America. I'm like, have you read about America? Had you, had, did you not take history in high right. school? Cause this is this is definitely America. This is the America that I know. And right. and you're so right. I was just talking about this the other day about how context is key. So when people are trying to compare the Black Lives Matter movement with uh, the, the, the capital storming, right. you, you can't it, you cannot put them in the same conversation. It's apples and oranges. You're talking about right. fighting back over years of oppression peacefully these people were you know i I think it was less than five percent of those protests throughout a entire i mean what was it seven months of marching and protesting less than five percent became violent Mm -hmm. so you're 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 you want to compare that with people literally there's footage of people i've seen it where they're sitting in the middle of the street with candles and they're singing along and police have come by with shields and tear gas Mm -hmm. and forcibly removed them versus, uh, again, an overthrowing of a government where a right. group of people who being are safely being, inside. Yes, yes. And rallied together with guns, with bombs, with fucking, okay, literal hanging stations. Right, right. What do we, t- and you want to compare that to some guys stealing some Air Jordans? Sorry, man. I'm not here for that conversation. Sorry. Right. <laughs> like, I'm right. sorry you feel that way. Uh, that sucks for you that you're that you're like that. Uh, get better, please. Add just to even add, and this is what I found interesting because a lot of Republicans came out and they said, "No, this is really wrong." And 
oftentimes I try to think about it. Like, at what point were you just going to keep egging this situation on? Because you realized your life was in danger, that they were coming for you too. And once your life was in danger, right? Even what was it? Mitch McConnell, mm -hmm. right? Him, like, once you realize your life is in danger, all of a sudden, this is not the America we know. We need to respect the democracy and we, we need to this, <laughs> right. and we need to that. You know what I mean? Because your life was now in danger, but you weren't thinking about everybody else's life that you put. You put out a $600 check for people who haven't been able to pay rent in almost a year. I, I like the audacity of the U.S. government in this, uh, dude. I I, I was saw. Oh my god, this is Six, so. I six hundred dollars. I saw an interview with this woman. Um, she was always the woman who looked like Mrs. Doubtfire, who was standing by Trump during all those meetings uh, about I the coronavirus. Oh. Uh, I forget. I forget her name. I think wasn't she the press secretary? No, she was. She, uh, I don't know if she was or not, but she, it was always her and Fauci standing right beside Trump during all the coronavirus updates there in the beginning. And, oh, she's the lady that when Trump said to drink bleach to help <laughs> cure COVID, it, the her face she was like, oh god, yeah. Okay. She was like, she was like, oh no. Be <laughs> quiet. Yeah. Yeah. They all stay. Okay, that's another thing. Is I'm real quick is like the silence that people had during the meet. Like whenever Trump would say some like off the wall shit, and people were just like just sitting beside the table with him. Not one person ever was like, "Hey, man, um, <laughs> maybe not tell people to drink bleach." <laughs> anyway, so yeah, so this woman was doing an interview recently since Trump has left office and, and she sat down for like one of these, you know, like 2020 interviews. And uh, she's talking about the coronavirus task force when it initially started. And she said, um, she goes, you know, it was really hard for me to get a lot accomplished because it was just me, you know, having to tackle the whole United States pandemic. And the interviewer was like, oh, you mean it felt like you were alone in the fight? And she's like, no, I mean that Donald Trump only hired me. I was the only person in the entire world, in, in the entire United States in charge of the, like I had no staff under me. There was nobody working with me. He hired me to just get rid of the coronavirus for the entire United States. And she said it was like that for months until she had to find volunteers that would join her team and help her put together this task force and all this stuff. But like she said for months, it was just her. <laughs> and you're like, I think the sad thing about um, Trump and his administration, first and foremost, nearly all of them were infected. Yes. I was showing up to these events maskless. Oh. I, and then all of y'all got the virus, every single last one of y'all. And the crazy thing, um, I was reading up on a lot of these things, a lot of people who voted for Trump. Like, even if you remove the whole um, Black, Black Lives Matter, right? right? The oppression against Black people. Even if you remove the whole immigration topic, it, it was all of these people who voted for this president after now we're up to about 400,000 people who died and we're not just talking black people we're not just talking immigrants we're talking white we're talking hispanic we're talking like it did not discriminate 
It did no. not discriminate. And I've learned that, especially in a lot of these rural areas, a lot of those people voted for him, mm-hmm. but they were most impacted. And these are people who voted for him. And some of them are people who voted the Capitol, by the way, who didn't even vote. Yeah, I, I saw that too. And the chef's kiss at the end of that is of oh, the people that were arrested. It was over, I think there's been over 100 people now that have been arrested for storming the Capitol. That's a felony charge. So that means they can no longer own guns or vote in upcoming elections. So the the boogeyman that uh, the Republicans have put into place with Obama and Biden and all these people throughout and Hillary and all these people who are going to come and take your guns. The irony that you storming the capitals to support Donald Trump caused you to lose your fucking guns is just (laughs) your own by yourself. Yes. And lost your gun by yourself. Nobody forced you. Nobody. Right. And and it's 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 crazy to me that they it's it's just crazy that they're so negatively impacted. I mean, even with Obamacare, right? All this work was done to overturn Obamacare. It's it's given the nickname Obamacare because it happened under Obama's administration, but he did not he did not coin it up by himself. It had to go through the House, it had to go through Congress, number one. Number two, it's the Affordable Care Act. And again, a lot of these people living in these rural areas need the benefits from the Affordable Care Act. But you're saying to cancel Obamacare. Let's make that make sense. Well, I think what you're dealing with when you're talking about that type of voter is the is the is the traditionalism of of the Republican Party. And and, I mean, if you look at that, you you look at these rural areas, you you look at those type of voters. And what you get into is this idea of uh, of that mentality of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Right. Mm -hmm. That's their that's their motto. That's their saying. And so this idea of like you still have people I've seen many videos on TikTok and stuff like that of these hardcore Republicans refusing to take unemployment handouts and, and, and kind of uh, uh, being, you know, dis, uh, dismissive versus uh, of people who are taking advantage of the unemployment or the stimulus check or whatever. They're angry about it because they, in their minds, they, they, you get locked in that again to, to unpack this a little bit in those rural areas, you get locked into this bubble, right? There's lack of diversity there. And I don't think that they're hateful people necessarily. I think that they lack diversity. So if, if they're arguing that the transgender people can't serve in the military, odds are they've never met a transgender person. If they're saying that, you know, uh, yeah, you know, George Floyd uh, deserved what he got because he, you know, did this and that because of his past record. That was a big narrative in the Republican Party. They probably don't have any black friends or or friends of color at all. And so they're not in those communities they are not in those lives. They don't know those people. So it's hard for them to connect. And a lot of these people have these traditional relationships or marriages. So they don't have... Uh, again, a connection with strong and empowered women. So they are not going to fight for strong and empowered women like Kamala Harris or AOC or the, or Hillary, or they're not ever going to vote or put in favor of these ideas because of the lack of diversity have not been exposed to them. So I don't think that they're hateful 
in general. I know that it, you know, I'm sure some of them for sure. <laughs> uh, but, but again, you know, yeah, exactly. It's just a lot, a lot of lack of diversity, a lack of, of, of world knowledge. And I, they're, they're, they just know what they know because that's their way of life. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, right. You know, and you, uh, you know, I always, no matter what side I'm talking about, no matter what group I'm talking about, I always come back to the phrase of not judging many by few. And I have to remind myself, even when I'm talking about, you know, Trump supporters and loyalists, uh, even though I, God, I disagree and I do not like them so much, I try to separate the idea of judging many by few because the reality is it's not all of them. So what I've learned going to this school and I remember like me speaking proper English, which is just me speaking proper English is like, Oh my goodness, I talk white. Um, and I, I've had friends who'd say like, keep it real. Like they stay in the streets. What streets? I grew up in the neighborhood. Okay. <laughs> grew yeah. up, and I live in a neighborhood, uh, a, res- a residential area. We can call it that. Right. Um, but you know, always making these references, um, and it's not that I can't switch up on you, but you know, the reality is it's okay for me to speak proper English. And if I said, if I mentioned any Ebonics, like I would be ridiculed. Right. I know back in those days, um, when I was in high school, some of the terms is like, get out my grill, stay out my business, stay out my Kool-Aid. Right. What's a grill? Are we having a barbecue? Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And it's like, really, you know, but I had to kind of accept that a lot of them are products, again, of their environment. Um, I think the challenge is what do you do as a product of your environment, right? The same way with Black people, unfortunately, we're born into this system that oftentimes is, is, is still able to keep us economically um, disadvantaged, um, oppressed. It can make us a target. It's the same way with European Americans, right? Caucasian, they're born into a system where where they're basically a product of slave masters. So what do you do with that knowledge, right? You grew up in an all-white neighborhood um, and you only saw your color. And maybe what it was is that Black people were lazy, they didn't work hard, they were barbaric or whatever. Um, but that all comes, again, from the slave master mentality. So what do you do with that? Because they often expect African-Americans for us to rise above the ashes, right? Like the phoenix, rise above. You You were born in a single parent home just with your mother. You got pregnant as a teenager. You had to work three, four, five jobs. My parents, they immigrated to this country from Haiti, child of immigrants, you know, um, but rise above the ashes. But how do our Caucasian counterparts rise above the ashes? Do you educate yourself, right? Do you teach your, what are you teaching your children? Are y'all really teaching us that Columbus made this huge, big discovery and didn't kill the people that he found there? Are we saying that he was the first one there? Is that what we're saying? (laughs) You know what I mean? How are we rising above? Because if one side is supposed to find ways to navigate through the, the trauma that still impacts them today, I think the other side should also navigate through a lot of these biases that unconsciously, that they're unconsciously more than likely going to be fed with. And some do rise above it, right? And others 
don't. And I think that's where the, the ignorance turns to stupidity. Yeah. And it, it, it comes down that lack of diversity, that lack of honesty and that misinformation. And I think I think a lot of uh, black children are are told to be superheroes, like literal superheroes rise above the ashes like you were talking about, where white children are told that they already are superheroes. Look what right. Christopher Columbus did. Look what Benjamin Franklin, like, look at all these fucking great people. They're all, they're just like us. And you need more, uh, you need more of those, you need more of that diversity. You, we need to be teaching uh, kids in schools because that's where it starts. Mm-hmm. Um, a more honest history of America <laughs> and also a way more diverse one. I mean, and especially in this country where, we're so ego driven. I talk about this all the time. The ego that America has. We're number one. America first. You know, we're you know we're we're pledging allegiance to our flag and we're singing about our nation and we're so pride. It's all pride, 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 and we're the best. Go, go, go. Um, it's it, it's okay to have. There, there's a difference between having pride in your country and nationalism. And I think that line gets blurred a lot. And I think right. it starts with, with kids in schools. Right. Right. And I, I mean, there, there's so many different directions to take it. I, I saw, I was here for Twitter, especially black Twitter, especially when they stormed <laughs> the Capitol, I was here for all of black Twitter and everybody yeah. who participates in it. And I, there was one meme that really has stuck out to me. And every time I see it, I laugh. It's just, it's just a black, I think it's a black man or a black man with um, with a head wrap on or a black woman. And they're in the back, like kind of checking. And the 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 quote is me in the back of my child's history class in years <laughs> to make sure they told the story right. And I posted it. I reposted it and I put the caption because what Pearson Education and McAfee is not going to do is tell these kids that they had a picnic in front of the Capitol building. That's right. not and, and what I've learned, and I mean, it, it really takes me back to, I mean, think of Nazi Germany, right? Yes. Um, Nazi Germany, um, the Soviet Union. A lot of what I learned in history class was the propaganda, right? And so you had kids who were in class and the way they told history for something that was so corrupt, right? For systems that were so corrupt, so inhumane, they were really ingraining and, and indoctrinating these kids um, with the thought that killing so many Jewish people in concentration camps was okay. Oh no, we just put them in a room and told them to take a nap. We put them in a sauna, huh? We put them in a sauna. You see what I mean? And told them just yeah. calm down, take a nap, making it seem so simple. And I realized that oftentimes based on who is telling the story, they're going to tell it in a way that they don't look so bad. And so me growing up um, in high school, going to a mostly white school, I remember uh, seeing, you know, of course, Haitian descent. I'm, I'm of Haitian descent. Me getting excited for them to get to the part to let me know and remind me and me to remind them that Haiti was the first to gain its independence. Yes. The first Black Republic. It was just one line. And Haiti gained its independence. One line. You gave us one line. <laughs> one line out of all of this. And you spent all this time on the Declaration of Independence, but you gave Haiti one line. Slavery didn't even, I don't even think slavery got more than a paragraph. And that's 
that's the challenge where when we're talking slavery and when we're talking even everything around the world, when we're talking Asia, we're talking Africa, we're talking European history, we don't give them, you know, we, we don't give the, the, the flavor that we should give it, right? And we don't call a spade a spade. Again, to our earlier conversation on accountability, slavery was messed up. It was wrong. Columbus came here on some land that didn't belong to him. And, and the real story is that he was looking for India. Let's, let's be clear. He was looking for India and he landed in the Americas, landed, not found, landed and was like, oh, this is India. This is why we call Native Americans sometimes Native Indians because he thought he was in India. So he basically got lost. Let's call a spade a spade. He got <laughs> lost. He brought his friends over. They got greedy, caused all these problems. Native American was like, mm, no, 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 no. You're not going to come for us. This is not going to work. But then they came with diseases, right? So now Native Americans are like, what is going on? What are you guys coming for? You know what I mean? And then Native Americans get pushed out. Like, tell the story the right way. And then celebrate the diversity that's in this country, as you said. You know, celebrate the work that's been done so that gay people have the right to get married so that a woman can become the vice president, right? So that we can have the most diverse presidential cabinet that we've ever had. Let's celebrate that diversity. Let's celebrate the fact that we can now see a black kid and a white kid holding hands at the playground, playing around, and it's no big deal, you know? Um, and, and I think the challenge is the lack of accountability. Say, this is what we did wrong. Right. And this is where we are. And if it's still not right, let's say that it's still not right. Let's not act like they had a cap. Uh, uh, again, a nice little picnic. Right. right. On Independence Day came for fireworks in front of the Capitol. <laughs> and some way, somehow, one of the fireworks broke a window and people ran in and had a parade. We're not going to tell the story. <laughs> You're exactly tell right. Tell it the right way. I, I think, man, there's there's. I, I think of all the evil and bad stuff that uh, that came with the Trump administration, I think it was such an eye opener on mm -hmm. on where we are and who we right. are. We right. talked about that before about who you know this isn't America, and you're like, mm, yeah, it is. Mm -hmm. um, I think we got distracted. I mean, it was sure it was a big achievement seeing uh, Obama get those two terms, and we we i felt like we got almost too comfortable and we were like well we solved racism <laughs> like like it was like well black guys president we did it so right, everybody go right. home and right. then trump came along and we were like oh what was oh, that oh what is all this there's still this happening and i i'm so proud of us i was really worried but i'm so proud of us um for 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 not reelecting Trump and standing up for what we believe in and so many of us standing up and saying, hey, man, this isn't OK. And now yeah. you're right. We have the most diverse presidential cabinet we've ever had. Uh, Kamala Harris is such a huge, huge achievement, um, not only for, uh, you know, the uh, the people of color community and, and women community, it's it's for everybody. This is the right. first time in history. It's important. I, I, you know, I kept seeing all these posts about like, Oh, it's so important for my daughter to see, you know, the, I'm right. like, yes, it is. But it's also as important for your son to see that as yeah, well. Right. 
because that's how we that's how we get better in the future is normalizing right. it for everybody to just go, oh yeah, this is normal because she's qualified, because she's smart, because right. she is enough, quote unquote, right. she gets to have that job. And it doesn't matter gender, race, or background or whatever, mm-hmm. she she gets to do that. Right. Um, and I think that's so important. And uh, yeah, I was, I was so proud of us for that, for that moment. And I mean, it, it doesn't mean that they're perfect. Right. And it doesn't mean that we, we don't hold them accountable. And I think right, that's right. another thing that what, what people try to forget. I, I know with Obama, I think the challenge as well uh, to, to piggyback on what you said um, with Obama, I think off what I got out of that a lot was even as a black man, I think people forgot that Obama still falls under the system that the rest of us black folk fall under. He is still a target. Yes, he has a higher level of security, but he is an, as much of a target as all of us are. There was actually a, a, a white man um, who had put, put up, I don't know if it was um, TikTok or something, but he put a video and said that um, his daughter came to him and asked him if it's possible for the police to shoot the president. And he said, no, that's, that's impossible. Like they, they can't, that's, it's not, a, it's not okay. She said, is it okay? And he said, it's not okay. That's a horrible thing to do. And, and, you know, of course, yes, security, he's not, they're not, it's hard for them to even be able to get close enough. And the, his daughter responded and said, so can we put a black man as president. Wow. Just to, just to say how much even children are observing this. And so I think even with Obama being a black man as president, some people tried to say, oh, the issues aren't happening when so many issues were happening. Black men and women were still getting killed by the cops. You know, it just, it just wasn't on Facebook. And that, and that's right. That's that's right. the argument that I always have where they're like, oh, all of a sudden now all these black people are getting shot. I'm like, no, 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 no not all of a sudden. Televised. Yeah. Yeah. It's just that's being broadcast. Now. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and now they're coming out in the open. But yes. with Obama, the issues were still there. We were still protesting. You know, there were still protests. There were still the tears. People were still grieving. Nothing changed. Obama has gone on public television and cried. You know, it still impacts him. And we don't we don't know what he goes through or what he went through as the president, right? As a black man, the president dealing with you know Congress and the House, you know um, things I've learned that there were a lot of things that he struggled to get past because you know it was just them making it difficult for a black man. And then you have the next administration that came in, and it was literally from the day that Trump won the election. It was almost like like it was like a, a sleeping lion that just needed to come out. And you have all of these people, you know, relationships, you know, black people and bl- biracial relationships or even, you know, immigrants, you know, descendants of immigrants in biracial relationships. And then people start showing their colors and then you see the disagreements between people. And this is not even a white thing. Right. You have Hispanics. I'm Haitian and a lot of Haitians voted for Trump. And I think another challenge, another thing that people need to understand is we often vote or make decisions or support people. Our values are often based on our perception of our privilege or our disprivilege. 
right? So I might perceive that I'm disprivileged and it, based on my perception, it impacts me more. And so my vote might reflect that, right? And my values might reflect that. For another person, they might find a man, a male counterpart. He might say, well, you know, I find that the current administration supports my privilege. Even if he is disprivileged in whatever way, he still thinks of his privilege. And because of that, he says, you know what, I'm going to vote to support my privilege. While others might say, I'm aware of my privilege and I see that other people are negatively impacted because of my privilege and because of that perception, I choose to support those who are negatively impacted by my privilege. And I think when we start to understand that, I think that's when we can start having some real conversations. When everyone can acknowledge that we have some level of privilege and disprivilege, even though I'm the child of immigrants, I grew up in a two family home. I, you know, my parents were able to support me going through college, but there's another kid like me who didn't. And so while I have disprivilege, I also have a level of privilege. What am I going to do with that? Am I going to sit in that and act like no one else is impacted? Or am I going to use that to see how I can support another? It's only fair. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, again, it, it comes back to that accountability and what we're right. in that empathy for, for others. And, you know, um, again, yeah. And, and again, I think Trump placated to, quote unquote, the, the forgotten people, right. you know, the, the people that were losing their jobs due to uh, just a, a you know, the, the coal mining jobs and this and that down south right. that were on their way out anyways. Mm-hmm. But again, with accountability, it's you have to blame somebody. So it's the Democrats took my job and I need somebody to bring my job back, even though your job is becoming very quickly obsolete mm-hmm. um, or dangerous, you know, for right. everybody else and stuff like that. But they don't see that because, again, it's it's their experience, their bubble, right. their family. At the end of the day, right. people just want best for what's or what's best for but their family. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to talk about your book, um, uh, Sharing My Lens, The College Experience, and how you came about writing it and why you felt like it was it was your story to tell and, and all of that. So let's break down the, the, the book in general. So what is this? Explain to me the, uh, the, the purpose of the book. The purpose, uh, basically in the book, I share some of the gems that I wish I had going into college. Um, I think a lot of us can agree college is hard. It can be boring. It can feel like 10 years instead of four. Um, but, you know, I really, I feel like there's a lot of things that if we're aware of it going into college and we're prepared for it, it allows us a level of control um, over our experience that makes it more enjoyable. So that's basically it. I, I touch on three areas. First is, um, my brain, first is self-awareness. <laughs> Knowing yourself, um, understanding how you learn, understanding your personality and being okay with finding the shoe that fits, not the brand of the shoe um, as it relates to your college experience. Um, Second is, you know, being intentional about building your skills, writing, reading, um, public speaking, you know, um, you as a comedian, you as a podcaster, you need those skills, public speaking, you need it. But I think when we're in college, 
and even before then, we're kind of like, how does this add value to my life? So that's part two, you know, really investing in yourself with those skills. And then part three is your network. Um, being comfortable with the fact that you're on your process and trusting that process, but also building your brand and being open to networking with other people who could provide value to your brand and you can provide value to theirs. So, so speaking of uh, like uh, this traditionalism that we have in this country, I know a lot of that's changing in the upcoming years. You know, the, the mm-hmm. generation, I talk about this all the time. The generation behind me is, is not getting married. They're all living in vans. So they're not, <laughs> they're not buying houses. They're not, you know, they're, they're not necessarily going to college. If they are, right. it's all online. Do you think, do you think there is a future? Do you think we'll always have this traditional idea of going away to college and, and, and studying, a, you know, and, and becoming a, a skilled professional in, in one thing? I think what I, I don't, I, I mean, I, I see how people are being taken away from it. The idea of the traditional idea of college. I don't know that it's going to ever go away. I think there, there will be more innovative ways to kind of switch up the idea of college. So for myself, I go to an online school. I was going to an online school before the pandemic Um, and I absolutely love it. And, you know, I've heard college students come to me and they're like, oh my gosh, I hate it. I have to go on zoom and sit in class for this and that. And I'm like, what? That is not an (laughs) online experience because I know with an online school, they are intentional about crafting a quality online experience for you. And your professors can't go in and do any type of craziness. You know what I mean? So that being said, especially with this pandemic, where all of a sudden we've discovered that we can learn online and we can do all of these different creative things, even if we're not in person, I think the college experience will somehow transition or transform what exa- into what exactly I'm not sure. Um, but I do acknowledge that I think there's more of an emphasis on learning. I think society needs to get with the program um, in accepting the fact that we all need to learn. You don't stop learning until you die. And I think the challenge is a lot of us look at like Mark Zuckerberg and who was it, Bill Gates, college dropouts. First and foremost, they dropped out of Ivy League schools. I don't know that anybody pays attention to that. (laughs) And, And the next thing is that they read like hundreds of books a year. I'm still on my first book for the year. (laughs) I'm still struggling through the first hundred pages. You see what I mean? And I think we try to use those different types of people or people who became millionaires and so on and so forth to to, um, account for our lack of investment into our craft. Yeah, you to, to, to let us off the hook. Yeah, to be like, right. well, Bill Gates didn't do it. And you're like, yeah, right. yeah, but Why you're, do I have you're, to? you're delivering pizza and you're 33. So maybe maybe you're not Bill Gates. Right. So for me, it was like they have taught themselves the equivalent of what could give them a bachelor's or a master's or whatever. That's why you have a lot of people getting these honorary doctorates because they've had to really learn their craft. Right. And I think the challenge is we're so comfortable with our skills, our natural talents. Right. We don't cultivate them at all. And and I think that's where learning becomes important. You know, college is important, but so is trade school, because not everybody can sit in a college and learn about theory and so on and so forth. Some people are hands on. You know, they want to 
actually put things in place and, and that's how they're retaining the information. For some people, it's a matter of reading some books or sitting on YouTube or taking an online course. But I think, you know, the fact that we have so many different platforms where people can learn in different ways, I just feel like society needs to now embrace it, not use it as a way to say, oh, well, we don't need to go to college. We don't need an education. But listen, if you're not going to college, read some books, you know, and if you even as a comedian, right, you're constantly learning your craft, you know, you're constantly learning how you can do better. You're constantly learning how you can do more. And if it's not simply the art of telling jokes, it becomes the art of becoming a businessman, right? When you have your gigs, how do you manage your time? How do you manage your money? Because a lot of you know, a lot of things happen where I don't know, I, you know, let's say I become a landscaper, right? I'm a bomb landscaper. I cut, I cut grass for everybody. I'm planting stuff, but I don't even know how to manage the money that comes in. You know what I mean? And so I think there's an opportunity for society to invest more in the learning and the cultivating of skills and crafts than there is to really, thank you. (laughs) You're fine. then there really is to, you know, emphasize, well, you have to go to college. College is a disciplined approach to learning. It is a disciplined approach. You get homework, you have due dates. It's, they, they keep you accountable, but that doesn't mean you can't keep yourself accountable and read a hundred books a year. Like Mark Zuckerberg. I'm very well aware that I can't read hundred books a year. Cause we in the second year, the, the second month of the year, and I'm still <laughs> on book one. So I'm sitting here in college and some people, they do certifications and we have to be okay with that. You know, Um, now does this mean that college is bad? Um, no, I think it's, you know, to me, when you're going in with a purpose, um, and I touch on that in the book, when you know your purpose and you know what you're meant to do, then it becomes more enjoyable. But if you're just in there because your parents told you, it doesn't right. Really yeah. It's, it's attaching that, that passion. It's finding something that you're passionate about or something that right. you care about. And that way it drives your motivation and everything else. Instead of, again, like you just said, where it's like, well, I'm here because I have to be. Mm-hmm. So before we wrap up, I want to talk about that idea of work-life balance and how do you find that? Are there any tips or tricks that you have? Cause you're balancing so much right now yet you're accomplishing so much right now. Is there anything that, uh, you know, maybe somebody's listening out there that that's just starting out or is, or is juggling a few things and they're falling behind. Is there any tips or tricks that you have that kind of keep you on, on your path of, of that work about of that work-life balance? Um, now there are different things that I do. Um, it depends on the time of the year, depends on the day, depends on the week, honestly, different things work for me, depending on how high the sun is shining that day. (laughs) (laughs) Um, now I think what's really worked was, uh, a to-do list early in the morning. So I I um, do the same thing. I list everything and that way it it gives you that, it it gives you that feeling of accomplishment. It also Mm -hmm. keeps you focused. Oh, I love that. Right. And, 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 you know, I, I've implemented it in different ways, but in general, you have your goals, right? You want to set milestones. What are the small little milestones that I'm going to reach that I'm going to celebrate? And it doesn't mean you take yourself out to eat. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that it can literally be like, wow, I got something done, but small milestones you're going to accomplish. And then you list out your action steps to, achieve the milestones and essentially achieve the goals. So again, now I have a to-do list. I list out all the things that I'm going to do for the day. Um, And this is something someone actually passed over to me. 
I prioritize them. So I, I, based on that to-do list, I list out the things. Um, I then categorize them based on home, health, school, work, and other. This is something I do first thing in the morning. Um, some of them are standard. I wake up, I do my devotion, I meditate, um, I work out, I have drink a gallon of water every day. Um, drink water, mind your business. Um, number five, <laughs> read for 30 minutes. Um, and I have those. And then I list out other tasks. Something can be as simple as call this person, respond to this email, and so on and so forth. And then at the bottom, I then list the home health and so on and so forth. And then I just list out the numbers associated with each line item. So as I'm crossing things out, when I get to the end of the day, I then go through those different categories and I can reflect on how I spent my time. Did I prioritize my health? Did I, you know, prioritize my work or did I make sure my work got done and so on and so forth? I also have a list of affirmations that I write um, and there's a science to this, right? Um, some people affirm who they are, right? I'm a mother, I'm a father, I'm a wife, I'm a husband, I'm a girlfriend, I'm a boyfriend, I'm making this amount of money, I'm going to this school, I have this degree, and so on and so forth. What someone shared with me is you want to affirm the behaviors that you're exhibiting to work toward being those things, right? So for example, if you know, I don't know if it's, you know, weight loss, right? Instead of affirming that you've lost 25 pounds, you're affirming that you're working out three times a week, right? So I have these affirmations um, and some of them are more general, more others more specific. Some of them are, I'm protecting my peace. I'm um, being my best and authentic self. Um, some of them, I call my parents every day because um, my Haitian parents get irritated if they don't hear from me by a certain time. <laughs> <other> <laughs> right. um, but yeah, so I, I do that, but also different things, right? Um, I'm sleeping by this certain time and I'm waking by this time. Not every day am I exhibiting those behaviors, but because I'm writing them, I'm working toward getting close to them. And that has been helping me with the balance. I will tell you, I think in the fall, I had a moment where I was extremely stuck where I'm like, okay, my brain hurts. I don't want to do this entrepreneur thing anymore. Um, I had just gotten my doctoral candidacy status. I was like, I want to throw that away. I don't want to do this eyewear collection. I'm just done. <laughs> and I have yeah. an entrepreneur friend of mine. We get on the phone and we're like, this is for the birds. And I'm like, all of them, every single last one of these birds. I don't want this anymore. But, you know, I said, you know what? All right, let me, I'm, I'm done rolling in my bed and being, you know, tired and, and slouchy. And, and in a funk, so I started my writing of my to-do list and I have someone who holds me accountable. They text me and they're like, how did your writing go? Um, and so I would do it in the morning and I've been able, emails and projects, I can't make this up, that have sat for three to four months <laughs> have been completed in a few weeks. Oh my God, that's great. Yeah, I think we all are, fall victim to that, that funk of falling in there. I know yeah. I have many a times and it is, you know, it's, it's so, it's so funny because that thing that you don't want to do, the thing that you're fighting a lot of times I try to go hiking every uh, 
three times a week, Monday, Wednesdays, right. and Fridays. And I, I try to get over there. And there are some mornings where I'm fighting myself so hard on the idea of, of just getting in the car, driving over there, doing the thing. Right. It's so, it's so little on the scale of everything, but, uh, mm-hmm. but every time I do it, I feel like a new person. I feel right. so much better. And you have to kind of, what helps me is reminding myself of how good I'm going to feel right. once I get this done. And, and that doesn't, of course. yes, yes. So whether that is working on a project or, or right. sending an email or doing whatever, I know a lot of times when we, you know, I, I, I deal with depression a lot where even mm-hmm. sending an email feels like an all day fucking task. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I've, not, I've opened an email and like, just, and I've told yeah. my therapist this too. I'm like, I'm trying to type this email is literally one sentence and I want to yeah. cry. <laughs> yes. It's you'll, a real you'll, thing. you'll be staring at a text from a friend for three or four days. And yeah, you're like, yeah, ah. you're like, I want to do this. And you can really just be like, what's up? That's really yeah. what you, it's a word. What's up? <laughs> yeah. And you're like, hey, maybe they'll think I'm dead and they'll just forget about yeah. me. Problem solved. <laughs> I mean, it's a lesson to, it, it is a lesson to be kind to ourselves. I think um, last yes. year taught me that um, with COVID. I mean, it, it breaks my heart because, and it, it just, it's an eye opener. Like this thing, it took no prisoners, no. rich, poor, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, man, female, child, adult, you know, and they were having all these, well, it's affecting old people more and it's affecting, tw- no, it, like it took no prisoners. And even if you survive, you're dealing with the aftermath. You know what I mean? So that's one thing I, I also say, in striving to achieve balance, be kind to yourself. And I know some of my friends might listen to this and they're like, Julia, you need to take your own advice <laughs> because I have my moments where I'm so hard on myself, um, yeah. where oftentimes when people find me, they, they find me working in front of my three monitors with Chrome browsers with like 20 tabs open on each. Same. With no, and I, no shame. Yes, same. No shame. <laughs> But, you know, what I'm, I'm, and I have to constantly, it's an everyday thing that I have to do. You know, I write my to-do list. I look at my goals. I might say, hey, I wanted to get this done by September. It's not done by September. So what's the next step? You know, do we delay it for December? Do we say, okay, it makes sense to happen next year? Just because some things don't fit this year, that doesn't mean they can never happen. Right. And I think the, I think the, the key is, is that when you have these multiple projects going, these goals right. happening, work on what you feel passionate about in that moment. Right. That's what helps me where I don't you, what you're saying there is these deadlines are movable. Right. So you're like, right. I, I wanted to write that. I wanted to write that story by Friday. Well, on Wednesday and Thursday, I got caught up in making, you know, these promo flyers or doing right. you know, sending it's your, emails. It's your story. Yeah, exactly. So that didn't get done and that's okay. And when right. I feel passionate and when I feel involved to, to write that over the weekend, then maybe that story will be done on Monday. And it's a very important lesson also for creatives. Um, and I'm pretty sure you get the, what, for me, it's writer's block. What do you guys call it? I don't know. Talking. Yeah, block. it's writer. No, writer's block. Yeah. <laughs> when you're writing. Okay. So, so it's like with creatives, I think that's, you also have to be intentional about doing things that really fuel your creativity. I, I learned that the hard way. Um, I remember taking on a role that was very task focused when granted, when it comes to my day, I list out my tasks, but in terms of my creativity, I have to be in a role where I'm creating solution. I'm creating stuff. Give me a problem and I'm making something out of it. 
And I realized it put me in this place where I was so stuck, right? And so for creatives, even if it's a business idea, if it's jokes, if it's music, if it's beats, whatever it is, if it's graphic design, you have to find that thing that keeps your creativity moving. There, um, There's a, uh, a PhD um, student who shared a tweet and she said, when, once you start your um, doctoral journey, write a list of non-negotiables. These are the things that you're going, the self-care things and the leisure things that you're going to do to invest in yourself. They are non-negotiable. And for your entire time in your doctoral journey, you ensure that you stick to those non-negotiables. Um, and it could be taking a walk. For me, it's getting my nails done and my hair done. I love hair color. I love some hair color. And when it comes to getting my hair done and my nails, I don't want anybody to tell me anything. You know, and I had a friend of mine who paid off her debt and she had her list of non-negotiables. These are the things, it's not everything, but these are the things that are the most important to me. So I don't, maybe it's taking myself out to eat once a week, but because I'm taking myself out to eat and I still want to save money, I'm not out here buying every other pair of shoes, right? And so with finding a balanced life, what are the, your non-negotiables? Are you going to make sure that you have breakfast every morning at a certain time? Are you going to make sure that you go out for a walk? Are you going to make sure that you, you know, for me, it's one of my non-negotiables is speaking to my parents. I have to make sure I hear my parents' voice every single day. And even if they're irritated with something I did that, of course, sometimes you call your parents and you're like, what did I do? Because it's just, it's just Friday. So you did something. You don't know what it is. Right. But for me, that's what keeps me going. I have to speak to my parents. And there are other things that I, I make sure I do. I take myself out on dates. I don't know about everybody else. I take myself out on dates. That is non-negotiable. Once these restaurants open back up and the outside seating is up, I'm a roll up with my mask. <laughs> as long as they're adhering to COVID guidelines, I'm taking myself back out on these dates and taking myself out to eat by myself, you know, maybe with a book or whatever, because that's what keeps me going. And that's what keeps me balanced. So I think everybody needs to have that. Yeah. And it, 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 self-care is a lot like being in a relationship, only you are in a relationship with yourself and making those non-negotiables are things that you would think that you would want in your partner. And that's what you would want to reflect in yourself. You know, I talk about uh, this before the idea of like, what are you bringing to the table and is it right. matching whatever your partner is bringing to the table? And, you know, again, holding yourself accountable to those right. same things that you're looking for in a partner, but are you these things? Right. And the thing that helps me a lot get out of a funk or, or look for advice, to, uh, you know, or, or try to get myself some help is I try to take myself out of the situation and ask myself, if my friend was coming to me with this problem, what would I say? What would I say to them? And then I, that's what I need to say to myself, you know, uh, 99% of the time I'm like, well, I'd tell them the fucking blah, blah, blah. And yada, yada. And you're like, Oh, we don't well, take our own advice. Please. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, well, you just, <laughs> you, you know, the, you know, the answer now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I well, realized that, that's one thing I also learned, you know, I, I found that because I, I can take care of myself in so many aspects, I always look for friends and relationships that could fill the emotional aspect. And that can be traumatic. That can be real hard because especially with emotional, you know, you get, and, and still, I still have friends who call me like, son, did you eat? How much did you eat? And at what time did you eat? We at five o'clock. What did you have for breakfast? Was it just water? Um, when you say a smoothie, was it just apple juice or something more to it? Um, however, 
you know, I found that because I felt like I could provide so much, I was expecting for the emotional cushion. And I learned the hard way that it doesn't work that way because everybody's human. It's not fair to dump your emotional challenges and issues on another human being who has their own issues to deal with, right? And so I had to learn to work through them to be accountable for myself. And some friends, I let them know, if I'm having a bad day and you find me in a place where I'm needing you to heal on my behalf, step back. It's gonna hurt when it happens, but step back and let me figure it out and then come back. I might be upset at you, but these are my tall orders. And I think that we should also be willing to really give ourselves what we expect from other people because then it becomes whole people coming together in friendship and relationship and so on and so forth. Not, you know, someone making up for the things that you're insecure about. Yeah, absolutely love that. And love talking with you today. Thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening today. If you want to find out more about Juliette Nelson, you can find her at www.julietneuronelson.com. That's Juliet N-U-R-I, Nelson.com. And you can find her book, Sharing My Lens, The College Experience on Amazon Books. And you can keep up with me on Twitter or Instagram at Malone Comedy. That's at Malone Comedy. Comedy. And if you like today's conversation, please leave a rating or share this podcast with a friend. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next week.
if you're not too sick of hearing my voice, you can check out another podcast that I'm on called Speakerphone. I do it with my friend and singer-songwriter Ryan M. Brewer. It's a good time. Uh, you know, pretty much the premise is him and I were having these great conversations over the years. They were thought-provoking. They were funny. They were interesting. And nobody got to hear them. And so now <laughs> we started to record our phone conversations and share them with the world. It's called Speakerphone, and you can listen to it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast at. Don't forget to subscribe.